The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your hosts Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today we have in studio our guest, Paul Bud Haddocky. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us, Mr. Haddocky. We are so glad that you're here. And Jim, I'm going to go ahead and pass this off to you so that you can uh, start us off. Thank you very much, Jason, uh, and welcome, Bud. Um, Bud is absolutely one of my most favorite people to visit the museum. Uh, we've got his story. We've got a video playing of him in the museum here. But Paul actually served in World War II. He wanted to be a P-38 pilot, but he didn't get his wish, and he ended up a bombardier in a B-17 flying fortress named the Eradicator. Bud's got a great story. He was 16 when Pearl Harbor was bombed, and then he went and got his draft notice on his 18th birthday. And Bud was off, and uh, they tried to put him in the Navy, and I'm going to ask Bud to tell us about that. And fortunately, he got his wish and went into the Army Air Corps, the predecessor to the Air Force back then. So, Bud, again, welcome. Will you tell you? Will you tell us what it was like when you learned about Pearl Harbor? Well, I was a 16 year old kid at a malt shop with a buddy of mine, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt came over to the radio, saying the Japanese Empire had bombed Pearl Harbor. I remember that so well, saying to my friend, oh, nuts, we're not old enough, we'll never get in. Little did I know. Because two years went by pretty quick. I was drafted and a sideline. I wanted to enlist. Everybody did. Our country was hit, attacked. And my dad wouldn't let me, and I can understand that. Many years later, when my older son went to Vietnam. But if I would have not uh, got drafted, enlisted, I would have had a 60-day deferment and not gone in until September. In this way, my birthday is Memorial Day, May 30th, and I was in camp July 19th, where, bud, deja vu, Jefferson Barracks, Missouri. And, Paul, that was your first visit to St. Louis, right? First time I'd ever been to St. Louis. That's correct. And and the story gets better from there. Um, immediately when you uh, report it, didn't they try to put you in the Navy? Yeah, draft boards in those days, uh, I have no idea how they are now. But you got in the line, and like I was telling you at dinner, the draft notice said, be on time, and they meant it. So you got in line, and they had a rubber stamp, and that was it. And the guy stamped me, Army. And uh, I said, no, I don't want the Army. He says, okay, give me your wrist. He stamped me Navy. I said, I don't want the Navy. He says, well, you're pretty fussy. I said, I love to swim, 
but I really don't want to be on ships. He says, keep moving. I said, please, stamp me army again. And he did. And then not until I got to the first camp, Camp Grant, Rockford, Illinois, when some officer came out and said, any of you interested in going into the Air Force? And there were a number of us put our arms up. And, of course, we had to take some tests, not to see if we were MIE or MIT graduates, but to pass their tests, which we did, and I got into the Army Air Force. You uh, you mentioned one other time that you really wanted to fly. You want to be a pilot, fly to P-38s. All kids did, Jim. Uh, it was such a uh, gung-ho, romantic thing. Movies in those days, you know, uh, Patriotism was very, very high. I don't. I think our country. The only time it might have come close was the uh, trade towers in New York, but that was just New York. And I remember telling a guy we were talking about it, and he said, "Isn't that just terrible?" I was working at an air show, and uh, about the trade towers, I said, "Absolutely, it's terrible." But I said, how would you like to see an entire country like that, meaning Germany, which, of course, up the road we flattened. But uh, you didn't have much choice. You, uh, If I didn't have a mom and dad that I dearly loved and a great home, I would have gone AWOL. I wanted to be a P-51 pilot. And, of course, I wasn't able to, and then I believe that saved my life because I did not go overseas probably till about six months later. And if I would have been a pursuit pilot, I probably would have been killed, even though we came close. So you didn't get your wish to be a pilot, but you found yourself in the nose of a B-17 as a bombardier, right? That's right. Actually, I was called a Togolier Bombardier. In late 44, Eisenhower, Churchill, and the powers-to-be decided to go away with precision bombing, meaning the Arch in St. Louis, the Empire State Building in New York. Instead, we went to pattern or saturation-type bombing. And what that meant very simply is that we would watch the lead ship in each squadron. When he opened his Bombay doors, we would open ours. When we saw his first bomb come out, we would release ours. Not nice, we would drop, which we did, on the center of Berlin, Munich, Dresden. Thousands and thousands of people were killed. But actually, it brought the war to an end a good year sooner. We absolutely flattened Germany. And I just, my heart aches for those people in Ukraine today and what's going on there. So, Bud, on uh, February 16, 1945, you flew your first mission, and it wasn't a cake run, was it? It was called Ham, H-A-M-M. Ham, Germany, which was very close to the Rhine River in Germany. 
And uh, a new kid on the block, I guess the service is no different than life. you got to earn your way. And we flew low squadron. In other words, there was a high squadron, went over first, a medium squadron, and then the low. And, of course, by the time you got over the target, the German 88-millimeter cannons were becoming very accurate. And they actually shot out two of our engines, which were on fire. We were going to bail out, but fortunately, we were told to hold off. We thought we had enough fuel, and we were very, very close to the German lines, and we crashed in Belgium, which, thank God, was Allied territory. The Germans, believe it or not, had left there about two weeks sooner. So we came very close to being prisoners of war, but we didn't, and we hung around there for about four or five days, and a C-47 transport came back from England, picked us up, and then we started to fly the rest of my 23 combat missions. So you were in what they called tail and Charlie position, right? Is that That's what they a called good it? name for it, yeah. And uh, it's kind of where the newbies are at, right? Yep. So your your ship was hit by flak, right? 88-millimeter cannon shells. And when you see in the movies or wherever black puffs, there seems to be confusion there. Then the shell has already exploded into hypothetically 240 pieces, 100 pieces, it doesn't matter. I dug a, a piece of flak out of our waist about two to three inches thick. There was another one in our number three cowling, which was the size of a beach ball. As I say, there's no rhyme or reason how it explodes. I couldn't get it. One of the other guys did. I don't know how he got it home. So you're 18 years old. There's these big bombs going off. Well, you're probably almost 19 by now. I flew all my missions, all of them, at 19. But you're probably still pretty scared with, you know, you're not in Minnesota now, right? I was scared every mission. And if anybody out there meets somebody that was in combat and says to you they were never scared, I'm not going to say it over the microphone what to tell them because I was scared and we all were. How could you not be scared when somebody is shooting at you. So you were in the 8th Air Force, and, uh, of course, the 8th Air Force suffered the highest, highest casualty rate in World War II. You know, half the, uh, half the casualties in World War II were suffered by the 8th Air Force. And uh, back then, how many missions did you have to fly? Well, it changed pretty quick. When I got over there, it was 25. And... Uh, I was, I was, our crew was a replacement crew. That's not a good word. Replacement meaning for guys that died. And when we started, it was 25, but we ended up with one waste gunner because they didn't have enough guys, and they increased it to 35. Now, I flew 23 combat missions, and then I flew three food drops to the people of Holland. And, of course, uh, May 8th, 
last Sunday, by the way, which our lovely paper did not have one line in about VE Day. And I felt very bad about that because there's a lot of widows, not grandmas anymore, out there still hurting. But nevertheless, when I flew, it was 35, Jim. That's, um, so I'm a 19-year-old kid. I get shot down on my first mission, and I get back to the air base, and I'm thinking, well, heck, only 29 or 34 more to go. That had been a little frightening. Uh, kind of cute antidote on that. When a guy was shot down, if that's a good thing about the Air Force compared to the infantry, you didn't see a lot of blood and guts. You saw planes go down. But when we got back, the guy said, oh, are we glad to see you. And our answer was, well, thank you. Give me my footlocker back. That is what they did immediately. Because if you went into grief, you'd go crazy. Didn't they actually uh, collect your personal effects before you took off? Um, I am not positive on that, Jim, because... Our radio man uh, was able to radio back. Remember, we crashed in Allied territory. Mm. And no, I don't think so, because why would they have sent a C-47 to Belgium to pick us up? But generally speaking, if you went down in uh, enemy territory, Germany, uh, they didn't know right away, so you were missing in action until it was confirmed. And, Bud, how long was each mission uh, time-wise? Very good question. We would get up usually around 2 to 3 to 4 in the morning, kind of early. Then we'd go and have breakfast. We usually didn't like to take an ice-cold shower because that's all there was. Then after that, we went to briefing, and briefing was... You're going to San Francisco, California. You're going to Chicago, Illinois. Rather, you're going to Berlin. You're going to Dresden. And towns like Berlin were uh, very terrible, well fortified. And when the word Berlin came out, you could hear in the briefing room, oh, a lot of guys, you know, somewhat disappointed. Why not? And... Uh, then we carried the guns out to the plane, 50 caliber machine guns, of which there were 13, and install them. And now we'd sit and wait. And then a red flare would be fired off in the air, meaning time to go. And planes would line up, just like at a commercial airliner, if you've ever flown, and looked out the window, if you're not number one, it takes a while before you get off. Once you get airborne, now you circle and circle to meet with the other three squadrons. There were four squadrons in a bomb group. There were times when 800 to 1,000 planes went over a target. People say, how can that happen? It takes a long time to meet and form. And at that time, there were many mid-air collisions because the weather was not very good, especially in the wintertime. But I would say the average was 
eight to ten hours, half that time on oxygen. So when you guys got the, uh, you know, okay to, to take off and go and you were circling, was there any discussion in the, in the plane about what you were going to do or was that all done in the briefing? Oh, no, that was all explained in briefing. Uh, as I said, uh, they had an actual, you've seen it in movies, a curtain and then the curtain parts and here is a map of Germany. And they would have a route, but the route would not be straight. It would be to the right, to the left, and you wonder why it was to throw the Germans off. Once we dropped the bombs, our route was straight home. Then let's get home. So I'm assuming you had a navigator on board to, yes, to be sir. able to get you where you were going and coming home? We, if I may, uh, starting with the nose, I flew right up in the plastic nose, plexiglass, not plastic, pardon me. And then to my left, there was a desk, and that's where the navigator flew. Then you crawled down underneath and up, and you were by the pilot and the co-pilot. And then right behind them, there was the flight engineer, just like you have on commercial airliners today, who would watch the fuel consumption and uh, so forth. And then right behind the flight engineer, you would have the bomb bay. Behind the bomb bay was the radio man. Right off the other side of the radio room was the ball turret. Then right off of them were the waist gunners. And then way in the back was the tail gunner. So there were either nine or ten men on a B-17. So I'm assuming that the navigator was uh, pretty important because you wanted to get back where you came from. If the navigator, something happened to the navigator, what was the plan B to get back? They were, I would say, if you gave them a grade, as far as I know, it would have been in the 90s. They were very good. We would practice missions over Scotland and Ireland, and they would do celestial navigation because even though we didn't fly at night, they had to know it. And I used to always kid the navigator. I said, it's a good thing I'm not a navigator. He says, why, bud? I said, we would have ended up bombing Chicago. <laughs> well, it sounds like you guys had a pretty good crew. Did you guys stick together, the same crew stick together the entire 23 missions? or In the air, it's family. Total family. Uh, I've used this in many of my talks. One mission, our flight engineer came out getting ready to get on, and he was totally bombed, smashed, drunk. Why? Because most of the guys, people don't believe that, never thought they'd make it home. It was, why? Don't worry about it. I kept a log on every mission, bomb load, how many hours, how many holes in the plane, the crew said to me, many of them, what are you doing that for? We're not going to make it. When the war ended, they all wanted a copy of it. Yeah, I can only imagine how much that would mean to them after uh, surviving all those, thinking they weren't going to make it. You know, but um, do you guys did you guys stay close long after? The- not, in my case, no. I was kind of a loner. In fact, my kids and family and what have you, 
my career was in sales for 35 years, and I turned it out to be, I've been told, an extreme extrovert. At that time, I was more of an introvert. And uh, I went to London, I believe, three times on pass. I wanted to see all the historic sites. I mean, uh, Buckingham Palace, I couldn't get in. Uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, Tower of London. And uh, a little uh, side note, I remember going out to eat, and this little English gal says, what do you want, yank? And I said, I want some fish and chips. And they brought them. And I said, honey... Those are French fries. Oh, no, Governor, those are chips. So I was screwed up on that one pretty bad. So, Bud, that uh, great story, by the way. The um, And uh, there's a couple things that happen during the course of a war, and, and one of them is you're fighting Mother Nature also. You know, and, and it was cold up there, wasn't it? 60 below, outside the plane, in the plane, it's a little debatable, but anywhere from 20 to 30 below zero. You wore gloves. If you took the gloves off, which many guys did in the heat of battle and touched a 50 caliber metal machine gun, skin would come off their hands. They would get frostbite. Many men had fingers amputated. And it was a very... <laughs> A very hazardous profession, to say the least. Uh, oxygen, one of my uh, responsibilities was to run an oxygen check every five minutes, especially when we were over enemy territory and being shot at, because every position had an oxygen tank or system. If the system got hit, which it did, Thank God, not on our crew. A guy wouldn't know it. He'd just go to sleep. And it's called anoxia, A-N-O-X-I-A. They're brain dead. So my job, if that would have happened, would be to unplug from my oxygen system, take a portable, and get to that position and administer oxygen if they're still alive. So like I said, it was another thing that didn't happen to us, thank you, God, where I just lost a friend a couple of years ago. He had an arm blown off. If arms or legs were hit bad, had to be amputated, we would put morphine in them, put a parachute on them, and throw them out of the plane. What do you mean? Out, out of the plane, the Germans would pick them up. They were humanitarian on that and put them in hospitals. If we wouldn't have done that, they would have bled to death on the five to six hours to get home. So you mentioned earlier that uh, some, of the, some of the missions, you guys had some uh, damage to the plane. So when you were, were you, mid-flight, were you assessing damage that way, or were you waiting till you landed to assess damage? How did you know how damaged it was or in, in that vein? You wouldn't know unless you were standing right by that spot where a shell came through. Um, in my logs, uh, there's one where I said we had 10 holes. On our first mission, we had over 20. There were some we had one or two, and others we had none. But this is why you didn't fly 
the same plane all the time. In all my years of speaking, people could never understand that. And I'd say to children, high school kids, I'd say, well, what happens when your dad's car isn't running? You take it to Goodyear, Firestone, or what? We had to let the mechanics work on them overnight, and many times we had a new plane the next day. So I imagine you would get real close with the mechanics. Is that true? Well, we, uh, not personally as much as take care of that plane, buddy. Right. Yeah, right, of course. And they became quite compassionate about it. You would see movies, there are some, where they're waiting for the planes to come back, and these guys are sitting there counting the planes as they're returning, looking for their plane. Yeah. And I'm sure it was really important to them to make sure that they uh, saw the return as well. You know, that's why well, they're out there counting. I can well imagine because uh, kind of a guilt trip, I suppose, which would have been totally wrong, but could have been put on them. Yeah. I mean, a plane doesn't plan to be in the way of flak. Flak means to get at the plane. And uh, we lost many, many planes. We were attacked by the German jet, the ME-262. We were not hit. But right off our right wing, which I would say 50 to 100 feet, they got hit blew up, and all the guys died. Now, believe me, you say, why them? Why not me? I guess it just wasn't our time. Yeah, that's that's heavy, isn't it? Sometimes. It's very heavy. Until I got home in later years, I'm a Christian man, and I'm very proud of that, and I thought maybe God got me home because he picked Muriel out for me. She was a 17-year-old junior in high school, my sister's best friend. We were married 73 years, and I lost her two years ago. Oh, my condolences. But uh, we were blessed. It sounds like it. One of the things that occurs to, you know, as the war went on, you know, early in the war you were bombing targets in in what France and and not going into the heart of Germany and as the war went on late in the war you were deeper into Germany and closer to Berlin and of course Hermann Göring swore no enemy bomber will ever reach the city that's right and if you had to bail out or crash land in Germany you not only were fighting the soldiers but the civilians ready to we have a uh, one of our newsletters I don't know, two, three, four years ago. Our bomb group now, the 452nd, we no longer have reunions. It's funny. Uh, The last one was here in St. Louis two years ago. There were only two originals, me and another guy. Now, we have a lot of second and third generations coming. So now what we do is go to the 8th Air Force. And the 8th Air Force was comprised of either 40 or 42 bomb groups. That was the 8th, and we were just part of. But you were so right before, Jim, when you mentioned, um, I never knew this, uh, the 8th lost more men than the Marines lost in the war. 
And, of course, when you start to think about it, when a plane's hit and it's not running right, you've got to figure out now how to get down from five miles up. And, of course, a lot of guys couldn't get down because they weren't going straight down. They were going in circles. And if you've ever been on a roller coaster, you know you can't move when it's going down. And um, very sad, very sad. You thought about it, but like I said, if you brought it to bed with you or kept thinking about it, you'd go nuts. And and some of the positions on the B-17, the positions were harder to get into and get out of, True, too. The tail gunner and the ball turret. Yeah, but each of us, I would say, this is typical Air Force, Army, Navy, or what? Our ball turret gunner, one of the tightest compartments there is, had a bad back. Why would they make him a ball turret gunner? So we, I flew in there about six times for him. Not for the whole mission. But, you know, you're, you're a young kid. You're gung-ho. You want to do this. and uh, But you're absolutely right, Jim. Probably the nicest spot for viewing was where I flew. And uh, that was up in the nose. Okay. So the fortress delivered you home. You got home. And you had a couple missions more harrowing than the other ones. Anything you want to add about any of the missions particular? Well, I mentioned the one to Dresden, which was called Zwicka, Z-W-I-C-K-A. I believe it was a suburb of Dresden where we were bounced or attacked by the German ME-262. And by the way, America only had blueprints on jets then. That's how far... And one thing bothered me, it really did, and it still does to a point. When the war ended, England, France, all the countries fought for the German scientists. Who got Werner von Braun, the father of the space program? We did. But Werner also developed the V2s, the V3s. They had a rocket, thank God again, that could have gone to America. It never got off the ground. We, with spy ships and all, bombed Pinamunda, where they were all being developed. But uh, no matter what, Jim, uh, it's like you get an ouchie on your knee or you lose an arm, it still hurts. And uh, I, I... Still at this ripe age of 97, I'm still so thankful to God that he spared me. Aircrew had a lot of favorite names for the B-17. What were some of your favorite, bud? Well, ones that stay, Hell's Angels, Memphis Bell. I went to Dayton, Ohio for the world premiere of the song I wrote on the documentary, and the night before, there were about two to 300 people for the showing of the refurbished Memphis Bell in all her glory. They rebuilt the whole thing. Uh, I have a book at home, Jim, with just names of B-17s. And uh, uh, there are a lot of feminine names, names after girlfriends, 
what have you. I don't know who named ours the Eradicator. It had the body of a rat and the head of Hitler, and above the head of Hitler was a bomb that said rat poison. I love it. I love it. So when you guys got to your aircraft, uh, was there uh, aircraft paint for you know other than the one that you just mentioned for the different aircrafts that you flew on? So you you had the Eradicator. What other what other planes did you uh, I, fly missions on? I wish I could remember all the names. Okay, that's the one thing I didn't write down, and uh, it might sound a little flimsy, but. It still was 77 years ago, and you can't remember everything. And then again, we probably flew, again, I'm guessing, six or eight of our 23 in the Eradicator. There is a thing called, and I got it from a friend, loading list out of Washington, D.C., and they have every mission flown by the 8th, and the positions of the planes and the names of the people on the plane. And I have that with my stuff. Someday I'll have to bring that into you, Jim. That sounds very interesting. So, Bud, you've flown 23 missions. The war is winding down. You had a sense of that. And actually the war ended in May 1945. Tell us about the last three missions you're most fulfilling that you flew. Well... My last combat mission, to the best of my memory, was around April 19th. Now, why and how I always thought about the last guy in the 8th Air Force that flew as close to May 8th and was killed. That had to be terrible for his family. But mine was April 19th. Now, the Germans totally occupied the Netherlands. When the war ended, they totally occupied the Netherlands. They didn't just go home. But what happened was they were like two kids fighting and one throwing a rock at the other one. They knew the war was over, and they blew out the dikes, especially in Amsterdam and The Hague, and people, honest engine, were starving to death at 5,000 a week nearly. Some were eating tulip bulbs. The powers to be picked certain bomb groups. Ours was one. And German Lancaster, I mean English, Lancaster bombers and put plywood floors in the bomb bay and loaded it with K-rations. We called it uh, Operation Chowhound, and the English called it manna, biblical manna from heaven. Instead of coming in, if you can even visualize this, at 25,000 feet, we came in at 200 feet. I saw cows stampeding, not steer, and we dropped food to the people. The only sad part, when Muriel and I lived in Florida, I met people from the Netherlands, that personally made it their point to come and thank me, and that meant a lot. And they said that over 50% of 111,000 tons of food that was dropped 
by the British and Americans, over 50% was confiscated by the Germans. That's the way it went. So that was very fulfilling to help the people. I told my dad, Dad, I was sitting at the kitchen table. I said, what a beautiful way to end the war, doing some good instead of killing. So do you remember the day that you learned that you were headed back home to the States? Well, they kept me over there, Jim. They had to keep somebody uh, to get rid of all the planes and get rid of all. I mean, you just didn't let everybody go. So I didn't get home until August. And I came home on the Queen Mary. And instead of, I don't remember, but I think it normally carried a thousand. There were probably three, four thousand GIs all over the place. But I sure do remember getting home. You betcha. You got a funny story about the time that you, when you came home, you were actually going to pass through to St. Louis on your way to Chicago, I believe. And you brought home some stuff that you weren't supposed to bring home. Oh, I something called a May West. What's a May West, bud? A May West is, in simple words, a life preserver. Only May West was a voluptuous movie star at that time, and somebody named the preserver the May West. But when we got into Union Station, Chicago, where I was from, I called my dad. He picked up the phone. I said, Dad, this is Bud. You're home. I said, nope, not yet. I've got to go to, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of it, but we had to discharge temporarily and get a 30-day leave. But I took all my stuff and told my dad, I'll probably end up in jail on this, to bring some paper bags. I gave him my May West, my helmet, my oxygen mask, my throat mic, my goggles, everything. You don't know how many places have asked for that. The 8th even used it to dress a uh, mannequin in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, some years ago. But uh, Jim knows I have it, and uh, I've had museums ask me for it, but my kids want it. We had six children. We have 20 grandkids. We have 28 great-grandkids and one great-great-grandkid. And I might add... And a partridge in a pear tree. And and one of the things that you do with that stuff, before COVID hit, you were going into the schools and explaining what what you use those for, right? I asked the children, I still call they're young adults, but children, who wants to go on a mission? And they'll put their hands up, girls or boys. I'll take whoever does it first. In fact, I have a front page on the Pueblo Colorado paper where I made the mistake and took a young lady, but she had so much hair I couldn't get the helmet on her. I know that's a great experience for all those involved. You know, the kids love to to be able to participate in history and hear the stories coming from you. Um, You know, Jim just asked you a little bit about uh, coming home. You know, that transition between coming home and, you know, starting life back in the States. Give us a little bit of feedback around how that uh, came to happen and uh, maybe yeah. things around that. It actually, in some ways, I think my retirement uh, 
from my company was tougher than getting out of the service. I retired 38 years ago, but my wife said I went into depression for about a month. I was a sales manager, and all of a sudden I had nothing to do. Getting out of the service, all of a sudden you says, I got a lot to do. But yet it was a different world, and that's when I said to my sister, fix me up with a date. It was the first day I was home, and that's when I met Muriel. And uh, we got married a couple of years later. But it was I had different jobs. You kind of felt your way. You didn't know for sure what you wanted to do. Nobody wanted anybody to drop bombs. And uh, they gave us tests. I think they were called cruder preference tests. And if you answered them honestly, they were very good. In my case, it said the ministry, teaching, selling, uh, working with people. And uh, that helped me a lot. Because I talk to my grandkids now, and they tell me a student in college chases, uh, changes their majors three, four times. So, Bud, you came home. You were home now. And uh, you, you visit schools, and you actually give this little presentation. Just want to mention to the audience out there that it is on our website, Bud's little presentation that he did for the students, so you can look it up on our website. It's secvetsmuseum.org. So, and you'll get that website address at the close of the show. So besides being um, a military veteran, you also became an accomplished songwriter. And you wrote a song. The song is about the 8th Air Force, correct? Yeah, I'm not too sure about accomplished, but I thank you. Uh, in 1995, uh, the 452nd, was having their reunion in Minneapolis, my town. Never in my life did I dream that maybe a couple of my crew members would come to my house, which they did. And at 2 in the morning, I got up, and I wrote the words to the melody of I'll Be Seeing You. Then a number of years later, these producers from Hollywood were developing or making The Cold Blue, which is a documentary. They saw the song on my wall at home with the words. They asked me to sing it. I did. I didn't know this. My daughter went with me to Washington, D.C. for the world premiere. And this guy came up and he said, Bud, when we left your house, I said to Pete, the other director, Maybe we're going to use that song for the opening or closing of the of the uh, documentary. Would you like to hear it? Well, we'd love to hear it, and, and I can safely say that this is one of the few times we don't have to worry about copyright infringements. You know what they told me? I couldn't believe this. That in order to put that in their documentary, it cost them ten thousand bucks. Wow. Because I'll be seeing you is copyrighted. I didn't know that. Well, let's roll the dice and take our chances. Okay. Go ahead, bud. Be patient with me. I think I picked up your uh, whatever. Okay. <clears throat> I'll be seeing you. 
on all the missions that we flew, and also with our good old crew, the whole day through, enemy fighters and flak, the sound of loud ack-ack, and lucky we got back to our ground crew on that day we flew. I'll be seeing you on all those fields of green in your sleek flying machine. Oh, the one called Mighty Queen, I'm going to look for you in skies of blue. And when your flights are through, I'll be seeing you in my dreams, and I'll be missing you. So got it, bud. That was beautiful. Now, I just want to highlight real quick that that song is featured in the uh, documentary. It's called The Cold Blue. It's the... uh, it's a story uh, of the Memphis Belle, of the Flying Fortress. Is that correct, bud? And uh, this uh, DVD is going to be an amazing uh, watch for any of our listeners out there. So please, please go out and look for this documentary, The Cold Blue, featuring the Memphis Belle, a story of, the flying for- of a flying fortress, and uh, Bud's song that he just had for us. Uh, bud... Uh, thank you so much for coming to the studio today to share your experiences, your story, and uh, you know, thank you so much for everything you've done for this country, and thank you for so much for what you've done for America. Uh, people like me that get to hear and relive your experiences through your uh, memory, and I know that the listeners are going to be very pleased with this, and. Um, this is a great thing. Do you have anything else you want to leave us with before we sign off, bud? Well, just remember out there, freedom is a wonderful, wonderful word, but freedom is only one generation. It has to be taken care of. It has to be taught. It has to be tutored, and it has to be passed on. And in brevity, freedom is not free. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. We're going to go ahead and sign off from the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E. 
E-S-S-A-R-Y at Allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate.